From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, part three of three on IOL calculation after eczema refractive surgery. We don't do any pre-op calculations. We take the patient into the operating room. We take out the lens. There's no IOL inserted. The patient waits for about a half hour, bring him up to the refracting room. We refract them. We put that into the calculations, and we uh, use that implant power that we calculated, and we put that calculated power into the eye. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CMA activity. Wilson Code declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. This podcast is the third and final program on IOL calculation after eczema refractive surgery. In the first program, we heard from Sam Maskett on an easy-to-use empiric regression formula he has derived and tested. Last week, Keith Walter introduced us to a simple method which accounts for not only the refractive change in the cornea, but the lack of change in anterior chamber depth. We also discussed several alternative means of IOL calculation. But there is another way, a way that requires no pre-LASIK and, in fact, no pre-operative lens calculation. Back in Program 31, we heard from Sean Iancelev, Jim Salt, and Ken Hoffer about a method they derived to calculate intraocular lens power by bringing an autorefractor into the operating room and performing autorefraction during the brief time during cataract surgery in which the patient is aphagic. Wilson Coe, my guest today, goes one step further by intentionally lengthening this aphagic interval to allow manifest refraction. His lens calculation formula could not be simpler and employs no pre-LASIK information. So, to round out our series on IOL calculation after ablative refractive surgery, let's hear from Wilson Co. Wilson, after ablative refractive surgery, the source of the problem in intraocular lens calculation ultimately is the cornea. Correct. The power estimation of the cornea is the problem. And how does your method address this? Well, we, first of all, we don't, we don't rely on the corneal power. We take the corneal power out of the equation. Most calculations that are based on IOL calculations after refractive surgery are based on an estimation of corneal power. We don't use corneal power. We take it out of the equation. Wilson, can I have you walk me through your procedure from start to finish? How do we do it? Okay. We uh, essentially, on the day of surgery, we don't do any pre-op calculations. Okay? We take the patient into the operating room. We, under topical anesthesia, we uh, take out the lens of the patient. It's simply a, a lensectomy or cataract extraction. There's no IOL inserted. At the end of the case, we put some tears and antibiotics on the eye. We don't dilate or constrict the pupil. That's all we do. The pupil's already it remains dilated. We only the patient waits for about a half hour. We bring them up to the refracting room. We refract them. And we do the aphic refraction to see what the best vision we can get from that. They uh, come back downstairs. We, take, we put that into the calculation. There's two ways that we calculate it. And we use that implant power that we've calculated. And we put that calculated power into the eye. When you refract the patients at this point, is it something that you're doing manually with a foropter, or is this just something that you're doing with an autorefractor? Both. We do both. But usually the manifest is what's taken or what's accepted. 
you describe in the paper that the intraocular lens insertion is done about one hour later. Why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. One is that we let the patient go upstairs for the, pre- for the eye to repressurize and just to let things settle a bit before we, we do the refraction. So it takes a little time for them to go upstairs. That's why we wait about an hour. Do you reprep them? I, I, I guess that you need to since they've been out of the operating room. Yes, we do. Wilson, can I have you describe the design of the study uh, that you published in the JCRS? We basically looked at it. It was a retrospective study in which we took all the patients that we that had LASIK and developed cataracts subsequently. And we just performed this cataract removal, again, on the top of anesthesia without implantation. We had about a half hour later and performed a manifest aphakic refraction, determined the power from there, and then we brought the patient back to the operating room within the same hour or so. And then we looked at the post-op refractions one day, one week, two weeks post-operatively. How many patients were involved in this study? In this study, there were nine patients, 12 eyes and nine patients. But we have a larger pool. We just haven't put that data together yet. Can you talk me through the lens calculation formula that you used? Yeah. We took the uh, spherical equivalent of the A-factory refraction, divided that by 12. And that ratio was equal to the IOL power in diopters, let's say solving for X, over 21. Can you simplify that? Right, and solving for IOL power calculation in diopters, based on the, we, we solve for, that's our X, so to speak, we'd solve for that, and that would be how we would arrive at the IOL power to be put in. Now, the other method of simply measuring the power was to take that aphakic refraction again, instead of putting it on this proportional ratio, was to take that and times it by 1.75, Okay. There's two assumptions on that. One is that we just times the aphakic refraction spherical equivalent, we times it by 1.75. The two assumptions are that the A constant of the IOL that we were using, which was the same implant in all the cases, the A constant was 118.8. That's a single-piece Acrosoft. And that all of the aphakic spherical equivalent refractions were between the range of 8.5 and 12.375. Where did this formula come from? It came from Dr. McCool's experience with secondary IOL calculation. So it's an empiric formula? It's actually based on the virgin's formula, which is basically the distance from the cornea to the uh, lens in the eye. It's a refractive virgin. It's actually derived from the refractive virgin's formula. And how do you get from virgin's to this formula? Basically, we use the vertex distance of a aphicic refraction. It's a proportionality of the aphicic refraction over the vertex distance versus a posterior chamber over the vertex distance. Again, it's based on a refractive virgins formula, which is based on the principal planes, the distance of the cornea to the IOL power. Wilson, can I have you do a calculation on a hypothetical patient just so that you can walk me through this with actual numbers? Yeah, let's, let's take a simple case. Let's take, for example, a patient had myopic LASIK. Okay, we don't, we don't use, again, we don't use keratometry, nor do we use biometry here. We take the patient topical anesthesia, I'm just going to reiterate this part about how we do it. Top of anesthesia, bring the patient to the operating room. Patient's dilated like usual for cataract surgery. Okay, put in viscoelastic, capsulorexis, do a lensectomy or cataract extraction. At the end of the case, we take out the viscoelastic. Nothing else is put in the eye in terms of any constricting or dilating agents. The, the pupil is still dilated. Patient receives topical antibiotic drops and tears on the eye. 
patient was brought to, out of the operating room, sits for about 30 to 45 minutes. The eye is pressurized. Pressure is neither high nor low. It's normal pressure. And the patient then has a manifest aphakic refraction based on a vertex distance of 12 millimeters. We'll also cross-check it with an uh, autorefraction. And give me a typical manifest that a patient might have at this point. Okay. Let's say the patient has a refraction of plus 14 minus 2, for example. Plus 14 doctors minus 2 doctors at whatever axis you want to put it at. So the spherical equivalent of that is 13. Actually, let's make it simple for the calculation. Let's say the refraction is uh, plus 13 minus 2. So what's the spherical equivalent of that? Plus 12. Right. Correct? Yes. That 12 doctors would be divided over 12 equals x over 21. Solving for x, the IOL power would be 21. Because remember, the spherical equivalent over 12 equals IOL power in doctors, which is really x, what we're solving for over 21. Okay. Yeah, well, that's pretty simple. So 12 over 12 equals 1. The 21 gets transposed. IOL power diopters, i.e. x, equals 21. And so you'd put in a plus 21 lens. Correct. Now, we're assuming that the A constant's what? Uh, 118.8. Had all of the patients in the study had LASIK-4 myopia? Two-thirds of them did. Eight had myopic LASIK, four had hyperopic LASIK. And in the larger pool, that ratio also turned out to be more myopes. So you have no concern applying the same formula for myopic and for hyperopic LASIK? No, we had equally good results on both. What were your results from this study? Results were very good. We had a post-operative refractory results of anywhere from plus 50 range to about minus three quarters. And the mean was about 0.30. The average was about minus 0.18. How would you deal with corneal edema? Granted, this is not something that we typically see at this point in the surgery. But if you did, how would you deal with it? That wasn't an issue We didn't because uh, we checked these eyes on the sill lamp and we checked their pressures. Edema was not a problem. Do you do any sort of preoperative calculations as a backup just in case you can't get a good manifest? I did not, no. Would you consider doing a backup calculation? Uh, yeah, but the backup calculation I don't think would be very helpful. Not to beat a dead horse here, but let's say that you, you couldn't get a good manifest at this point in the in the case, and I, I I'll give you reasons later on why this might be true. Right. But in the event that you wanted to do a backup calculation just to cover yourself, what formula would be your second choice after this method? We we used to do it several ways. One was that you can try the, the typical historic method, where you take the you have the history of the pre-LASIK corneal curvature and you just kind of assume what the, how much of an effect they had from the LASIK, and you kind of would backtrack from the keratometry what the effect on the corneal flattening is and what the actual refractive effect was. That's if you had the history prior. You could also take the contact lens method, which is the over-refraction method. Frankly, we never found that to work because very often these patients couldn't be over-refracted with contacts for the reason that they had a cataract. And then... The other thing is that we would sometimes estimate the corneal power by topography. So we would take the, you know, one of the issues in estimation of corneal power is on a keratometer, what you get at three millimeters doesn't apply anymore afterwards when, when the eye's been altered by LASIK. So we sometimes would estimate the corneal power by topography at three millimeters. Another thing that we would consider is there's nothing to say that you have to do everything in one day. For example, you brought up the issue of corneal edema. Let's say you saw corneal edema and the eye didn't pressurize or, or did pressurize. You could also bring the patient back in a week or two when the cornea was less swollen, let's say, and then you could do the secondary procedure later on. 
So there's nothing to say that you have to do it the same day. If you're bringing the patient out of the operating room and then bringing the patient back to the operating room that same day, how concerned are you with endophthalmitis? That was an issue we addressed. We did not have any case of endophthalmitis, even in the larger pool. Uh, now, you can call that luck. But I think, we, again, we, on the first procedure, we used peers and antibiotic drops. On the subsequent procedure, most of, in fact, all of which were done the second, same day, we gave uh, intracameo vancomycin. And to date, in almost, I'd say, 100 cases, there's been no, uh, no case of anophthalmitis. Can you comment on the data from the larger group, uh, the group of patients larger than the nine that you presented in this study? Yeah, I would say the larger data confirms the smaller data. It's a larger pool that we pretty much had the same, same results in terms of range, absolute mean, and average. There's a little bit more myopes in that larger pool. In this smaller pool, we had about a third hyperopes, two-thirds myopes. Larger pool, we just had more myopes for the virtual reason that there are more myopic LASIKs done. Now, not all self-sealing wounds self-seal right away, and sometimes we need to hydrate, and sometimes we need to put a suture in. Um, I, I would certainly have much less confidence in my manifest refraction at this point if I had to do either of those things. You're talking about on the, after the first part of the procedure? Right, at the first surgery. So let's say that one of the wounds leaks, uh, and you need to hydrate or, or, you, or you need to suture. Well, first of all, I think the cervical refraction, cervical equivalent should, should be the same, even if you induce some cylinder on suturing. Because of coupling. Well, correct, because of coupling. I think our cervical equivalent would be the same. Secondly, if I didn't get a good manifest refraction with good vision, that probably, again, bring, consider bringing the patient back a few weeks later. So, again, we don't always have to do it the same day. We almost never did not have a case where we, didn't have to, we couldn't do it the same day. Rarely did that happen, maybe occasionally. Again, you can bring them back. Do you need to be concerned with intraocular pressure during the aphakic manifest refraction? Usually they were, they were fairly normal at the time of manifest, but they can rise. Our, our experience was that they didn't rise in the first hour or two after surgery. That was not a, we didn't have that issue as a problem. But would this be a consideration anyway, or, or is this something that's not important clinically? Yes, it might affect the, the refraction. Now, your formula does not take into account axial length. Correct. So it does not make any predictions about the anterior chamber depth, and it can't make any predictions about where the intraocular lens is going to sit in the eye. And I bring this up because a, a patient with a, a long eye and a flat cornea or a patient with a short eye and a very steep cornea can have the same manifest refractions, but the intraocular lenses are, are going to wind up sitting in quite different positions in those two eyes. Correct. Correct, correct. We only, we only took into consideration the external refracting power of the eye. So we did not take those considerations. Again, the biometry was not considered in the, in the equation. Now, you made reference to the fact that the manifest refraction and, and auto-refraction and that the intraocular lens implantation can take place on different days. Can you give me an example of a setting in, in which you might want to do that? Well, again, if we let's say you get some corneal edema, the patient did not ma- manifest with good vision, possibly a pressure elevation, you know, stuff where you think, occasions where you would not get a good manifest, you can come back and do it. And we have a few cases like that where we, we had to bring it back on a different day to do it. When the eye is a bit more quiet and selling, we've brought them back. 
Now, since corneal refractive power is not part of this lens calculation, I would guess that this formula would be useful in addition to post-LASIK corneas and corneas that are just very highly irregular. One of the reasons why we chose this method was we took other cases prior to LASIK where we had corneal scarring, uh, where we could not obtain keratometry, or let's say a bad corneal surface, because don't forget we need a, a good refracting surface in order to get a good keratometry. So though in, in a previous, previously to this, we used it, we used this procedure in those cases. And also in cases where, let's say you have a posterior staphyloma where biometry is highly inaccurate. We've also used it on cases like that as well. What do you do in your own practice in patients who require cataract surgery who are post-LASIK or, or just in general? I use it in, uh, primarily in cases of cataracts after LASIK surgery. And for all of those patients, in, in every single patient who requires cataract surgery after LASIK? After trying every known method, every known supposedly the method that's supposedly going to work, again, even be more than the contact lens historical method and estimating topography power and the other methods that are out there, this, case is, this procedure has worked the best for me by far. It's, uh, we find it to be highly accurate. And beside LASIK patients, what, what other patients in your practice would you use this as a primary method of lens calculation for? Patients with, where you cannot obtain keratometry, such as corneal scarring, traumatic corneal scars, corneas with bad surfaces, alkali burns, vitreal retinal abnormalities, again, as posterior cephaloma, uh, asteroid, we've used it, asteroid hyalosis, where the, the media is not accurate for biometry, and also in cases of nystagmus where we're able to get a good keratometry or biometry. That's interesting. Is there any other advice that you'd like to give, Wilson? Again, I'd just like to say that having tried every single method out there, we just found that this method worked the best, and uh, we, we've had superb results. Early on when I was doing this, using all the other modalities out there, I would say uh, more often than not, more, very often than not, I was going back and doing IOL exchanges. So for us, this has worked very well. And secondly, I think the concern about anophthalmitis is a valid one, but I think if the lens is removed without capsular compromise or any vitrectomy performed, that I don't think it's a major concern if, if that is done as well as antibiotic drops are given after the first procedure and intracameral vancomycin is given after the second procedure when they go down the same day. And thirdly, as we addressed earlier, there's no... There's no gospel that says we have to do everything on the same day. Uh, certainly, if you operate in a hospital, you might want to bring the patient back on another day. Uh, that gets into an issue with reimbursement and billing and all that. Uh, at our surgery center, because we have an operating room, uh, an ambulatory surgery operating room, as well as an examining room upstairs, we're able to do everything on the same day, and I'd say over 90% of the patients. Okay, just to go through this w- one last time, um, as an example, a, a, a patient comes to your office. Uh, he had been a minus seven myope. He had LASIK. After LASIK, he was plano. Uh, you do his cataract surgery under topical anesthesia. Um, you bring him to the room for refraction, and you do an autorefraction and a manifest. And if his acuity is good with the manifest, then you base your calculations on the manifest refraction rather than on the autorefraction. Correct. We almost always go by the manifest because... Um, the spherical equivalent of the manifest refraction. 
Yes, correct, because we find that to be more accurate. The, the order fraction system gives us a range if, if we're pretty close. It's more of an estimation. We use that as estimation as well as a confirmation, but truly it's the manifest that accept. And usually the vision has to be 20, 30, and the manifest exception, the, the vision has to be 20, 30, 20, 40 or better. You multiply that number by 1.75, yes, and you have your intraocular lens power for an IOL with an A constant of 118.8, and Bob's your uncle. That has only worked, we've, that's worked exquisitely well in the range of the eight-figure refraction of about plus one, 850 to about plus 1250. Below and above that range, I don't know if you can just times the eight-figure manifest, uh, sorry, the circle equivalent eight-figure refraction by 1.75. It works in that range only. It, when, we, when the larger pool is uh, looked at, we'll see if that range might be extended lower than 8.5 and possibly greater than 12.5. And you can still use the formula with the ratios, but it's the same thing. Correct. Correct. The, the, the formula ratios can still be used. Wilson, thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, Josh. Wilson Co. is an attending surgeon at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary in New York, New York. His paper, Intraocular Lens Power Calculation After LASIK in situ Keratomiliusis, Aphagic Refraction Technique, appears in the March 2006 issue of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Ask questions of Dr. Ko or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646 808 0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the New Media Project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.